Scripture reading today is from John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, some officers, and the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. Amen. And of course, uh, welcome once more. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor here. And, uh, and just want to congratulate you on being here. You, somehow you've survived the gauntlet of, uh, you know, the ACL. You're still here. Uh, you know, Texas OU weekend. How about that yesterday? That was a good day. Yes, but you're not in Dallas. You're here. Uh, somehow the four-day travel weekend, you're, you're still here. I think we've got a bunch of our college students and uh, campus ministry staff from every nation. They're out today. They're having their annual regional retreat. Got great reports back from that. They'll be back next week. Also, as Brett mentioned, I want to welcome back uh, our team that went to Rwanda. I had a bunch of folks who went to Rwanda, I think 15 to 20. And so welcome back uh, to them and to you all. As you can see, we're in the middle of a series. We're looking at the love of God in the gospel of John. And over my years uh, in ministry, first in campus ministry, now in pastoral ministry for years, there's one question that gets raised more and more in our culture. I hear it so often now. I don't think it's a coincidence. It's more of a pattern. And that question people ask is this. People ask, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he even have to die at all? And here's why I think people ask that. Uh, it's because people in every culture, we do this. We, we tend to like the parts of Jesus and his words that fit in with our culture. So we like the parts about him uh, that are about his love, about his forgiveness, about when he serves and he's humble and, you know, he washes the disciples' feet. We, we like that. Uh, but we don't like the parts that don't fit in with our culture. And if there's one thing that Americans like less than everything else, it's suffering. And so we don't want to suffer. I mean, we don't want to, like, you know, we exercise. You know, we don't want to just run on the streets in the heat. We want the moving sidewalk called the treadmill in the air conditioning in front of a fan. With the television, right. We want all that, you know. So we, we, when we see Jesus suffering, we don't get it. We try to avoid it. Why would God be after it in some way? Why? How could suffering be part of a divine plan? If God's so smart and all-powerful, couldn't he have thought of a better way? And so to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? And more importantly within that, to see the heart and love of God for us. Let's try to answer that question today because I think there's no better place to answer that question than here in John chapter 18 where we see the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of what's called his passion. 
So why did Jesus have to die? We can answer that by looking at and trying to answer the three questions in the passage that Jesus himself asks of his audience. It's also very convenient for the communicator to have three questions. All right. You'll notice Jesus asks three questions here. So let's look at and try to answer those in turn. First, he asks, whom do you seek? Then you'll notice he asks the same question, but in a different way. He asks, whom do you seek? And finally, he asks, shall I not drink the cup? And if we'll answer these, we'll see, first of all, who he is, then what he came to do, and finally, how he does it. You guys ready? Yeah, here we are. Number one, let's ask, whom do you seek? Well, where are we in the story? Well, Jesus here, the last chapter, he's just finished his, his big interview, his big portrait painting thing with Leonardo da Vinci uh, and the Last Supper, and he's finished that, uh, and he's left the house where they were eating, and he crosses, it says, the Kidron Brook. This was a little stream that flowed out of the temple, actually, and the water, because it was the time of the Passover, the water would have been turned red with all the blood from all the sacrificial lambs from there. And this is John's first hint, like in, a, like in a horror movie where you see blood on the floor, that something bad is about to happen to Jesus. And it is. So it is. Jesus crosses the stream into a garden to pray, and then one of his disciples, who's like mysteriously disappeared during dinner, shows up again. Verse 3. So Judas, he's back, having procured a band of soldiers. Now, this, this phrase here can mean anywhere from, anywhere from 200 up to 1,000 soldiers. So let's just take it down the middle and suppose there's about 500. 500 soldiers. And look who else is there in the garden. Some officers, the chief priests and Pharisees who were there with lanterns, torches, weapons. There are hundreds of weaponized people here against Jesus. And look at the, look at the diversity. There's Jewish religious leaders. There are Romans, essentially Bible believers, and skeptics. There are different ethnic groups. There's Jew, Gentile, there's educated, uneducated, uh, liberal, conservative, white collar, blue collar, essentially. They're all mixed now into this crowd coming out against Jesus. And Jesus looks out at this diverse crowd, diverse crowd, almost every kind of person in his day. And he asks them all a version of the same question you see him ask throughout his ministry. He asks all of them and us today, whom do you seek? Who are you after? Who are you looking for? Another way of putting it would be, what kind of person do you think I am? Let's hear it from your own mouth. Whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and this is his reply. You ready? In our English translations, it all says, I am he. But you'll notice in many of your Bibles that the word he is italicized, meaning it was a word that the translators thought that you needed to help you get what he was saying, but it's not really there. Not there in the Greek. In the Greek text, Jesus literally only says, I am. I am. Now we're getting somewhere. So to all of them, and to us, he says, I am. Who am I? He says, I am the I am. What does that mean? All right. Now, all the Jews, of course, would have known exactly what he meant. This was to provoke them a bit. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, I am was the name that God uh, spoke to Moses out of the burning bush in the desert. When God spoke to Moses and he said, yo, Moses, I put that part in there. Yo's not in the Greek either. All right. 
translators thinking he needs some help. But yo, Moses, go confront the superpower of your day. You versus the world. Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. Moses is like, well, who am I supposed to tell him? Sent me, you know, like a business card or something, God? And God says to Moses, out of the fire, out of the burning bush, you tell Pharaoh, God says, you tell the world, my name is I am that I am. I am is sending you. So Jesus and I'm saying in effect here, oh, you're looking for a man? That's nice. I'm telling you I am God. I am the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush 1,500 years ago. That was me. Now, this is crazy talk. It's crazy unless it's true. People say all the time, you know, I like the words of Jesus. They're nice words. If we live by Jesus' words, the world would be a better place. But what about these words? Hmm? This is an explicit claim to divinity on the lips of Jesus Christ himself. He's claiming to be God here. And I wanted you to hear me. That creates, and I don't use this word lightly, this creates a crisis for us. Matter of fact, two kinds of crises for us as Western people. Two kinds of boiling points, two kinds of breaking points when Jesus says, I am. Let's look at them each in turn. The first crisis that Jesus' claim to divinity pushes us towards is this. It's a philosophical and religious crisis of faith for every person. Here's what I mean. These words that I am, these, are, these words are a shot across the bow of every other religious system. They just are. Every other system has got a founder or a guru or a teacher who comes along and says, I'm not God, but I can tell you some truth, maybe about how to find God. Here's how to live better. But Jesus is totally different over and over. And right here, this is as clear as he can make it to his audience. He says, no, no, I am God. Come to find you. There's an interview with someone uh, recently I read that I think uh, who, a person who understands this pretty well, puts it well, it's this guy named Bono. Uh, yes, he of the rock band. And so Bono, a few years ago, was being interviewed by this skeptic guy uh, and all kind of stuff about being in U2 and about his views on faith. And when the conversation turned to Jesus, this is what happened next in the interview. The guy said, Jesus Christ has value and is ranked among the great thinkers of the world. But son of God, don't you think that's far-fetched? And Bono says, no, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, had a lot of good things to say, along the lines of others like Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Christ says, no, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So we are left with this. Either Christ is who he says he is, or he is a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire globe, one half of the human race, has had its history completely changed by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Now, some of you are saying, oh, yeah, 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 now. Now, Bono says it. You believe him. When it was just me, you're like, hmm, I don't know if I can trust that guy. But the rock star with the quote on the screen, it must be true. All right. Who are you looking for today? Whom do you seek? You say, well, Jesus was just a man. No, no. He says, I am God. There's a crisis there. 
if you're willing to see it. It's an enormous claim. Second uh, problem, though, that Jesus' words creates for us, create for us, isn't just a philosophical crisis. It's a personal crisis in that his words have to influence how we live because when he says, I am, and when God says, I am, that I am, God is saying at the same time, I am not who you want me to be. Not who you say that I am. Now, this is incredibly hard for us modern people to accept because we don't want the God of I am who I am. We want the he is who I says he is. That's the God we want. God says, for example, go there, do that, obey me, we object. So the God of I am who I am is out and the God of he is who I want him to be is in. God said, here's who I am. But we turn around and say, oh, it's so nice, God. You, you actually think you believe that. You know, you claim to be this. You, you say you're like fire. You're like a burning bush. You can't be touched. You're holy. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're alive. We say, no, no, no. God, you're like silly putty. I kind of massage you and roll you around and make you do a pink log that I, you know, make for my kids. You know, no, no. This is what we do to God. We sometimes don't even give him the respect we demand for ourselves, right? Someone comes up to you and says, hey, what's your name? You say it's this. They say, no, it's not. How does that make you feel? Someone comes up to you. They ask you, you know, who are you? You say, well, I'm like this and like that. They say, no, you're not. You're like, you know, who I say that you are. No. We don't want the God of I am who I am. We like the God of meet the parents. Remember Ben Stiller's prayer, God, you're such a good and accommodating God. That's the God of silly putty. We move him around, make him how we want. But today, let me tell you, if you want a God who is powerful enough, like in Moses' day, to free a million slaves and to free you today, you're going to have to have a God before whom your knee bows as well. And just in case you don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get across, look at what happens next. When Jesus said to them, John records this, he was there, and Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back. And now they, who's that? Hundreds of people fall to the ground. Let's see what's happening here. Hear me. In this like holy, righteous kind of way, Jesus is showing off a bit. He's leaking glory out of his human suit. He's totally, in a sense, one-upping them, not to humiliate them, but to prove his point. They come looking for a man. He says, oh, but I'm God. They come with weapons. He's like, I don't need no stinking weapons. All I got to do is open my mouth. Watch what happens. And just like Moses bowed before me in the desert, so you are going to bow before that name once more in my day. Why? Because he is, I am. Let me ask you, who are you after today? Whom do you seek? A person? You don't ask this kind of person to be your assistant? Your barista? Like a secretary? Chauffeur? Come on. I am who I am. That's who he is. Number one, whom do you seek? Number two, he asked the same question again. We're going to see, though, in a different way. And here's how this goes. Jesus, again, asked the same question, not just to spite them. He's not like some dude in a fight, like a heavyweight, heavyweight boxer who's saying, you want a piece of me? Knocks them down, they get up, you want a piece of me? No, it's not like any of that. He asks it again, but he answers it differently, not just to show you who he is. This time it's to show you what he came to do. And what's that? Look at verse 7. It says, so he, an- he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, probably a little bit quieter this time, Jesus of Nazareth, you know. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And that phrase right there in the Greek means release them, forgive them, let them go. He's saying, take me in their place. You want me? Let them go. Take me for them. Now, commentators will tell you what Jesus is doing here is what he does every step along the way during his passion. At every step along the way, he's showing you the heart of what he came to do. And he shows this for his disciples right here. He's going to go in their place. He's going to go in your place, in my place now. Pause here. Give me, sorry, this is for all the real theological nerds in the house. All of you love you. Give me 30 seconds here for a little detour. If if there's something that's called atonement theory, atonement theory is a little bit of what we're doing here today. It essentially asks the question from a Christian perspective, well, why did Jesus have to die? There are a number of theories, a number of important differences between them, crucial differences, but hear me. What they all have in common under the hood, no matter where you're coming from, once you lift that hood is this. Every one of them are about this, substitution. Every one of them are about someone coming and doing for you and me what we could not do on our own. That's what they're all about. See, Jesus is saying here, he's showing you the heart of what he came to do. Take me, let them go. Many years ago, a man by the name of Ernest Gordon was a British soldier. He was captured during World War II uh, by the the Japanese army, and he was made to work with thousands of others, uh, what was called the Death Railroad, which is a a valley along the River Kwai in Thailand. And the the POWs were made to work on that railroad, and the conditions were so cruel and deplorable and, and, and deathly, so awful that 500 men died for every one mile of track that was laid. And it got so bad that Ernest Gordon, in his book here, uh, is called, he calls it the miracle on the River Kwai. He said that the men were all at each other's throats. Everything was falling apart. I'm going to read part of the quote to you. He said, death was everywhere and the conditions worsened. Our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety. In numbers, we had still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was gone, completely swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us that we existed just to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, red in tooth and claw, the evolutionary survival of the fittest. It was a case of, he said this, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. But he said one afternoon, something happened. It changed everything. A shovel, a shovel went missing at the end of the day at the tool check. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. And when no one in the squadron volunteered the missing shovel, he drew his pistol and he threatened to kill every one of them on the spot. And then suddenly one man stepped forward. He said, I took it. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel and beat that man to death in front of all the other men. But next time, at the second tool check, something amazing happened. No shovel was missing. They discovered there had actually been a miscount at the first tool check. And Gordon says this, The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Another man was caught trading with the local people, the ties, for medicine for a dying comrade and was sentenced to death. 
But he submitted to it, reading from a little Bible and cheering up the chaplain right before his execution. Death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were being slowly freed from its destructive grip. And Gord went on to say that when the camp was liberated, these men begged for their captors to be spared and not killed. They literally lined up in front of the ones who had beaten them in order to protect them. What happened? Oh, see, they saw someone die in their place. That changed them. And now they were able to do for others, come on, what had been done for them. And in this way, in this light, you can now see what Jesus Christ came to do, except on a cosmic scale. He came to go in your place, take the blame he did not deserve so that we can personally be freed from, as Gordon put it, the destructive power, the decaying power of sin. And second, Jesus came to do this. I want to take a moment to talk about it. He died so that we can now do for others in smaller ways what's been done for us. And like with Gordon in that whole camp, now create a whole new culture in the middle of a broken, dying, decaying place. And let me give you four ways now we do this. I want to apply this thought in four ways. Here's my proposition. We create, we can create a whole new culture through Christ-centered, self-giving in the ways, here we go, we handle these four areas, power, sex, and family, money, and race. Power, sex, money, and race. Let's look at these in turn. First, power. Back to John 18. Here in the garden, first century, Jesus is facing down the Roman Empire, right? I mean, like the greatest uh, power the world's ever seen. But then, roughly, flash forward, 300-ish years later, the Roman Empire is now led by a Christian person, Constantine. Yeah, his views were dicey. <laughs> Methods questionable. But here, the point is what he did. He outlawed the persecution, execution of Christians by the state, In essence, three centuries later, Jesus defeated Rome. Defeated Rome. How? Well, here's how he didn't do it. He didn't do it by grabbing power, building an army, killing other people. Nor does he ever instruct his followers to take back their nation and force people to believe in him through laws and legislation. He never does it. You say, well, well, haven't some people, actually some Christian groups, done that in the past? Yes. And I want us to look at the effects of that, what happens. Today, here we go. Now, around the world, Christianity is exploding. You should know that, especially in Africa, China, Korea, Latin America. It's astonishing, outpacing the birth rate. It's amazing. Now, here in the U.S., not nearly as good, mm, holding its own, more or less. But there is one place in the world where the culture has completely turned its back on Christianity, where churches are empty, where the gospel is rejected, and that is Europe, especially Western Europe. And if you've been there, you know this. And it's amazing because Europe used to be, for many years, the cradle of Christianity. And that thousand-year period where, where Christianity was, uh, was respected there was called Christendom. You may have heard that word, Christendom. And for a thousand years, Christians had influence in the church and the state were essentially one. There were state-sponsored churches. And if you wanted a good job, you had to belong to this church and get that pastor or whoever to approve you. And the, the culture tried to force force people to believe in Jesus through laws, through the power of the government, and sometimes they killed people when they did it. And the church hung in there for a while, but what put it into all of it was when wars were fought in the name of Jesus. And Europeans today still point to that as the reason the church is irrelevant to them. Now, 
A man by the name of Alam Insana, he's a great African theologian at Yale today. He says, in the decades to come, when Christianity truly goes global and worldwide, which it will, he says, we will all look back at that thousand year science chemistry experiment called Christendom and say, that didn't work too well, did it? didn't work too well. Maybe we should try something else. See, the point is self-promotion from Christian people. Thank you. I paid her 20 bucks for that. All right. It's convenient. Self-promotion from Christians. Fighting for power to maintain this self. That's poison to a culture. The culture will literally turn its back on us. And now in this church, especially any church, but this church works the same way. Hear me. Self-giving, not self-promotion. That now creates the kind of church we all want as well. Second, how we handle sex and family creates a whole new culture as well. The early Christian community, you should know this, was one of the earliest groups that decided that abortion was wrong and that female infanticide was wrong because it was actually a right in the Roman Empire to actually throw your baby away, especially female babies, because males were more prized than females. And you had the right to drop your baby off in the woods or at a river and abandon them, it was called, to their fates, to the fates, right, to their, their concept of fates. And, of course, not surprisingly, the fates decided 100% of the time that your baby would die and not live. And around the time Jesus lived, there were around 40% more males than females because the practice was so widespread in the Roman Empire. But the Christian community said, no more to be a Christian means you cannot kill your child. And girls are worth as much as boys, or should we say boys are worth as much as girls, yeah. And Christians reserve sex exclusively for marriage between one man and one woman for life. And here's why this was such a big deal, because there was then, just like in many ways today, there was a double standard for men and women sexually. A man could have mistresses on the side, but a woman couldn't. And so by saying sex is reserved exclusively for marriage, it dramatically raised the fortunes of women in the Christian community and then subsequently in the empire. It eliminated that double standard and women and widows streamed into the church. Now, in those ways, yeah, Christian church looks pretty conservative compared to our culture now, their culture then. But in other ways, they looked far more liberal. When it came to how they handled money, self-giving, it changed how people viewed the church. They gave and they gave and they gave. They didn't insist my money is mine and I'm a self-made person and I got it all for me. They gave it away. Rodney Stark, in his great book, The Rise of Christianity, church historian, you should read it. He said, quote, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. New culture. And Stark here, he hints at the fourth way, self-giving affects culture. It's how we handle the explosive topic of race. And as a historian, he points out the facts that how Christians handled money, sex, power, family, race, those things matter. Now today, many Americans believe and studies show, especially American, a lot of American Christians believe that the best way 
to handle the topic of race would be to not talk about it at all. And they say, here's why they say, because talking about it only makes it worse. Now, those same studies show that Americans, American Christians don't think that we should avoid topics like money, sex, we should talk about that a lot, tell people how to live, about power, those things we should talk about, but race, we shouldn't. Now, can you imagine, case study here, with two people in a marriage, marriage, two people who love each other in a marriage, if one partner says to the other, hey, I think we've got a problem, to which the other partner says, no, we don't. The other partner says, I think we really do. Uh, When you say these things to me, when you do these things to me, it really hurts. We should really talk about it. To which the other partner says, talking about it will only make it worse. Now, you know, if you've ever been married, you are married, that not talking about your problems is the fastest way to make something a bigger problem. We can only make stuff better, make things better when we face our problems together courageously in love. And so if you're new here or you're old here or whatever and you're wondering, why are we talking about this? Why do we talk about it? Hear me. It's not just because the early church did. Say we want to be like the early church. Well, let's talk about race because they did. Look at the book of Acts. Look at all the epistles. That's about it. Churches are constantly talking about how to handle conflicts. But we don't just talk about it because they did. We talk about it. Ready? Because we love one another. Because we love one another. And laboring to make space for people not like us to the degree we can creates a whole new culture. We do it because we love one another. Yeah, thank you. Got a one amen. All right, we're good. Person with me. Five bucks there. All right, this this sermon's getting expensive. All right. Why did Jesus come? He came. To go in our place, to create a whole new culture, a whole new way of living. I hope you can see that. But we're not done yet because there's one more question that Jesus asked us. We haven't answered. And this question is going to show us not just the full extent of who he is, not only what he came to do, but finally how he came to do it. Three, he asks us, ask Peter, shall I not drink the cup? Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now that's John doing history there. That's how historians, early historians did history. They name dropped people so you could interview them yourself because they were still alive then. So verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, what's this? Oh, listen. Now, the cup, oh, the cup. The cup was this metaphor in the Old Testament. You see in the prophets, you see in the Psalms. It was about the Messiah. The Messiah to come was the one who would drink the cup of wrath that the the God of the universe had. And through drinking that cup would heal the world. But you'll notice here that Jesus says something different. He doesn't just say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. He doesn't just say, I'm going to drink the cup of God. He says he's going to drink it. It stunned me this week. He says, I'm going to drink the cup of who? The Father. The Father. This is the name Jesus uses throughout John for the one he has eternal intimacy with, affection with, who he's loved. We saw in chapter one, he's in the bosom, the heart of the Father. They're together. And here, right here in this line, we have what most people don't believe exists, what your friends tell you can't exist because most of us believe, hear me, There is either a loving father, which means he doesn't have a cup of wrath, or there's a cup of wrath from a God, 
which means he's not a loving father. But Jesus Christ makes no such distinction. He says, I'm going to take the wrath of a loving father. Now, God's wrath, let me tell you, it's not God being cranky. He's not having a bad hair day. He's not grouchy because he, you know, he got up late or he didn't do the dishes or something. No, the, the, the wrath of God is his just and settled opposition to evil in the world. And by the way, you want a God like that. You just do. You don't want a God who overlooks evil. You want a God who deals with it. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm going to drink. I'm going to take within me, absorb the cup of wrath of a loving father. Here's what this means. If Jesus dies on the cross, but we are not, humanity is not under the wrath of God for all the ways we have turned our back on him and others, hear me, that death is now divine child abuse. That's what it is. It's not an act of love. It's an act of horror, of evil. Hear me, Jesus' death is only an act of love if he's rescuing us from something we would have gotten. Listen, hear me. If you, for example, if you're standing with a, a group of friends, a group of friends and you're all staring at this house that's on fire, a burning house, and all of a sudden out of the blue, one of your friends just runs and throws himself into the fire and dies. And if one of your friends next to you said, behold how he loved us, you wouldn't say, yeah. No, you would say, what was he on? Like, that's, why would he do that? But if, 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 if your spouse, your child, your loved one was in that house and your friend ran into the fire, rescued the one that you loved and himself died or herself died in the process, you could rightfully say now, oh, behold how he loved us. Behold how she loved us on the cross. What was Jesus doing? He was drinking the cup of the Father. And when you see that, when you see there's a Father who's loved you so much, He was willing, John 3 says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to save you, rescue you, love, change you. Oh, now that shapes how we live. If you you only have a father, if you only got a God of wrath that turns you into a person full of judgmentalism. Oh, but if you've only got a God of just grace without someone who deals with evil, then that's a modern wishy-washy God that doesn't change us. Only when you have the two together. You have a real God you couldn't have made up who can change and shape and heal your life. I'll close with this thought. It's from one of my favorite writers and bloggers and thinkers. You may recognize the name here. Yeah, uh, here's how this quote goes. You can put that up there. It's from this person I know named Carrie. And so never quoted her before, but I am today. It's not just a shameless plug. Her words are meaningful and they speak to what all this is. In conclusion, she said this, Our tender modern hearts don't like the narrative about God requiring the sacrifice of his own son. Why couldn't God solve the problem of sin without so much pain? Why require his son to die? It's a common question. They might as well be asking what love really is. Here in the West, we're such a comfortable people. We will go to great lengths to avoid pain and suffering. Our affluence and events technology make it easy for us to avoid a great deal of hard things in life. Most of our problems are completely fixable in a few hours or days. Surely, surely, a God as powerful who is, as the Bible teaches he is, would find a way to avoid a sacrifice like the one he made. But we've forgotten what love really is. We think love is a well-versed Facebook post about the quality of human being our spouse is. We think love is buying organic milk for our kids. Or love is creating a beautiful dinner for our friends and dropping it off on a Wednesday night. Love means being with people who make us happy, offer us some kind of meaning in life, or deepen our connection with who we are and why that's significant. But most of all, we think love feels good. 
We're right in part, but those kind of things aren't the fullest measure of love. The fullest measure of love is whether or not you would sacrifice yourself so that someone else could be saved from a horrible end. Love is taking less so they can have more. Love is letting an... Another person's happiness matter more than your own. Love is submitting to a path you might not have chosen, except it's the only one that we can be on together. God loved us sacrificially because he knew that would be the only way we would learn to love the way we were meant to love. Perfect people don't exist, but perfect love does. Who is Jesus? See, I am. He's God. What did he come to do? Oh, it's to die, to create a whole new way of living. And how does he do it? He takes within himself what we deserve. What does it all mean? It means that God really, really loves us. Really, really loves us. And if you hear nothing else today, I hope you'll hear that.